Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. David Gergen is an institution in American politics. He worked for four presidents, three Republicans and one Democrat, and has been in and around the major events of the last half century. Now he's a senior analyst for CNN, teaches leadership at Harvard, and we sat down the day after the State of the Union, the day of the acquittal of President Trump, and in the midst of the aftermath of the Iowa caucuses to take stock of where we are and to talk about his own journey. David Gergen, here we are, bleary-eyed, the uh, morning after the uh, State of the Union, still mired in election night or caucus night from Iowa three days later. A lot to talk about. Normally, I would start with your story, and yours is a really interesting story that helps inform your unique perspective. But given the events of the last few days, I think we'd better start there. So, sure. Uh, well, we are blurry, but I hope we're clear-eyed as well. Well, give me your clear-eyed analysis of what you watched last night in the, in the State of the Union, both the president's speech and all of the uh, atmospherics around it. Well, the president's speech was, as everyone has uh, discussed, it, but was highly partisan. Um, he again and again and again went back to push off the, uh, the uh, Obama record and say, you know, unlike Obama, I, we've done such and such. Why do you before. think that is, by the way? Why do you think? He just has, there, there are just two or three people in the world. Obama's one of them. Hillary Clinton is another one. Uh, just get under his skin. And he, I, I think it's he's obsessed by that. And he's obsessed about being superior to them, not having to look up to them, being more, you know, he wanted, he was all bragging about this and that and the other last night as if the world started anew when I became president. Um, in terms of the overall arc of the speech, the fundamental idea of the speech was the great American comeback. And I do think that that is really open to question for a lot of Americans. You know, you and I, David, are very accustomed to looking at the right track, wrong track polls that come out. They've been taken for the last 15 years or so. Is the country on the right track or on the wrong track? Going into last night's speech, uh, we were 55% wrong track, 39% right track. This is just not a country that says this has been a great comeback. Uh, having said all that, although it's been on the on a little bit on the upswing and the it's economic on, definitely numbers on the are upswing, high, definitely on the upswing, and uh, he did have some things he could brag about: uh, the, the very low unemployment rate uh, among African Americans and, and and Hispanics are things he can brag about. Uh, but I thought it's all said and done. You take all the Trumpian things that we find troublesome and put them to one side. He emerged from last night's speech in the strongest position of his presidency. Last night was. I thought effective 
as a speech and telling people, I didn't know all those things that had changed. And whether you like him or don't like him, you have to concede a lot of things have changed, and some for the better, mostly in the economic realm. Um, and what, does he deserve credit for that? Well, you and I know that the president doesn't wave, wave a magic wand and, and determine economic outcomes in the country. But when times are going bad, the president gets the blame, and when times are going good, he takes Yeah, he well, takes I mean, the, the, thing about, the thing about the great American comeback is, first of all, it requires that you— depict everything before you yes. in the most negative terms. Color this as you will for the fact that I was there for part of it, but I do remember arriving in the White House in the middle of an economic crisis. <laughs> Unemployment peaked at 10.2%. It was 47 when Obama left <laughs> office, right. and Trump has taken it to 3.5. So Obama took it down from 102 to 47 and Trump another 1.2. As presidents do, he should right. claim some credit for that. The last three years of the Obama presidency created more jobs than the first three years of the right. Trump presidency. So but the, there was yeah, a... Let's, but, let's, but, say, let's say that again, because in the, in the last, in the time that Donald Trump has been president, if you take the month-to-month average number of job increases, it's lower than a similar period of time under Barack Obama. The last three for sure, yeah. You know, a generous person, a fair person would say, Starting with Obama, but we built on that. But his narrative requires this uh, yes, exactly. uh, so- something else. But I have to say, from his standpoint, and it, given his strategy, uh, and I'm interested in your view on this because you are someone who crafted presidential speeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, you work for four presidents. We'll, we'll get to that. It was pretty effective, I thought. From his for for what yeah, he was trying to accomplish, I, I agree with you. I, I thought it was a strong speech. I thought he did make the the ritualistic appeals to the base, uh, but he added some things last night. He talked far more he, frequently about uh, African Americans, about working families. I thought the outreach to the African American community uh, was overdone. <laughs> it was so obvious what was going on. Well, uh, almost everybody introduced in the. Yeah, gallery exactly. were uh, yeah. minorities. Yes, yeah, as if giving just, away scholarship to the young woman. Um, yeah, there, there was a reality show. Uh, <laughs> there was element to it, uh, but you know that's a flair. Right, but I, I thought I thought he, it, it, the plan he has for going into the general election seems to me a good one, a strong one, and it's yeah. going to be. It underscored the Democrats are going to have to really work like hell to win this. It, this, this is not going to be good. You know, no, I think that realization is, is 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 striking a lot of people, and and part of it is that I, I think that Trump's grasp of the modern media environment right. is not is not greatly. Yeah. Appreciated. There was a lot of. There were some schlocky moments last night, but I bet that they played. I, and uh, I think the outreach to minorities and women. Yeah. Uh, was, was interesting. Let me ask you a question. Do you think he's reaching out to the African American community and to minorities as a way to build, get votes up in those in those communities, or by doing that, it makes people in suburbs, women in the suburbs, that's what feel I more think. comfortable? Yeah, that's what I think. I think that one of the things that makes women uncomfortable with Trump, and he's got a huge gender gap, is right. divisiveness. Right. And I think that this is a bank shot mm. for him. I don't think he. I mean, maybe they think they can make big inroads in the African American community. I, I'm. I've seen, I've seen no that. evidence of it so no. far. I think this was a bank shot to kind of connote tolerance in a speech uh-huh. that in many ways was as intolerant as ever. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, that that's that's uh, yeah, how that I... Different grace notes for different groups. Yeah, yeah. 
Grace notes as as graceful as he can manage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. There were a couple of things that sort of struck me, and then I want to talk about the interaction with sure. Nancy Pelosi sure. and the sort of institutional strain we're living under. The presentation of the Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh. How did you read that? Because Rush Limbaugh's dying, apparently, yes. and that is, for him and his family, a tragic thing. But he also is a, he is the, he is the, he is the apotheosis of division in right. the country. How did you read that moment? That was one of the oddest moments I can remember in presidential states of the union. Um, Rush Limbaugh has been beaten up on me for a long, long time. Uh, You're not uh, in an exclusive club, my no, friend. It's a very big club, I yes. think. Um, and uh, so I, I've, he's never been a favorite of mine, but... I don't. I don't know, David. I'm. I'm something like this when a man is dying. I. I, I, think, I think one should be generous. What about the interaction with Pelosi? The president refused to shake her hand. Yeah, she I, ripped up a, his right. speech at the end. Right. She did not afford him the usual yeah. uh, introduction. Right. Uh, you know the the yeah, sort of pomp I, and circumstance. There was sort of snub for snub, wasn't there? I mean, you know, he he snubbed her to start with, and then she sort of snubbed him back. What does that uh, portend? I, you know, you have to worry that it means we're going to have a, a year that's entirely built around the elections and not around trying to get some serious things done. They, as you, as you know, Speaker Pelosi hasn't spoken to Donald Trump since October. Three and a half months or so have passed. He, she, after after they had a <laughs> a, a, a confrontation right. in his in right. uh, at the White House. Right. I can't remember a time when any president and a speaker was sort of estranged. Uh, if you go back to Ronald Reagan as the most conservative modern president versus Tip O'Neill, speaker of the House, one of the most liberal. And it, they got along very, very well. You remember that, that story when um, again, they, got, they got Social Security done together, Social Security reform, and they got tax reform done. There were major, major bipartisan legislation. And they developed an affection uh, between each other. You know, there's that story about Tip turned, I think, 70. Reagan had a birthday party for him at the White House and um, invited all his friends down for lunch. And at the end of the lunch, Reagan got up and he'd written out this little dog roll, as he liked to do. And he said, Tip, if I had a ticket to heaven and you didn't have one too, well, I'd give my ticket back and go to hell with you. <laughs> we miss that. And I think that was the spirit in which the city was uh, governed and the nation was governed. And, and I think this frosty relationship between the president, President Trump and Speaker Pelosi is sad. Each side, I guess, has, has reason to dis, dis, have an intense dislike for the other. But openly snubbing her, as he did when she held her hand out to shake hands, and then, and then she took her revenge as the night went on and got up and that tore, tore that speech apart. You have to say that's—it it certainly says, sends out every message you need is these folks don't get along and they're not going to get much done together and they're going to be—it's going to be a very, very rough election. I think that is a certainty. Yeah. The question— is what if Trump wins re-election and That's Pelosi is returned? What the next four years are like? Because I, I, you know, that is, if you were to map out the likeliest scenarios, that certainly is a high up scenario that the two of them 
you know, would be back. I think the uh, sober analysis of this uh, presidential race is <coughs> any any incumbent president, as you know, has a better than even chance of being reelected. Right. And a president in a good economy, even better than that. What's remarkable about today is that despite all of that, Trump <coughs> is not a sure thing. But he's certainly at least even money to come back. Yeah. And what is important to me is it's I, I think he was in good shape for re-election two or three weeks ago, but I think he's in stronger shape today than he was just a few Which weeks Which is ago. remarkable because yes. as we sit here today, the Senate is going to acquit him with several Republican senators standing up and giving CYA speeches about how they, they're sorry <laughs> yeah. he did what he did, that it wouldn't be what they would do. It was unfortunate. It was wrong. It was, but not impeachable. <laughs> but he will those remarks will be cast aside and he will claim vindication. Absolutely. And he has strengthened his base. And the Gallup yeah. poll came out this week, 94% of Republicans give him a favorable right. rating. And the, and the number of people who are independent has gone up. To 42. And, yeah. and Gallup is now has him at 49%, which yeah. he's, you know, he's never The highest broken. he's ever been. The highest he's ever been, never been to 50. Never broken. First president right. who's, who's never broken 50. The contrast with of Iowa... And the chaos in Iowa uh, versus this extremely well put together speech, even though you and I may not have liked parts of it, it was well put together speech. And it was very, a lot of thought went into the people who were in the balcony. I thought there were way too many. It's just clear that they're taking a pretty sophisticated view toward how to get from here to victory in November. And the Democrats are still struggling to find a candidate. Now, that's another story. Before we left this yeah. speech, I wanted to raise another question with you. What, what really struck me last night was that when it came to domestic policy, he, in fact, often sounded like a liberal president. He had, he had this program for this group and that program for another group, and here I'm going to put money here. He was adding things on that were very expensive spending a lot of money, and he not once spoke about deficits. Yeah. And, and the deficits have doubled under him. Yeah. We're a trillion dollars a year. That's the legacy we're leaving. So part of what's happening here is he's borrowing one hell of a lot of money to pay for a reelection campaign with through federal funding for a great number of programs. Now, we've seen this before with Democratic presidents, but I can't remember a Republican president doing it quite this way. You probably can't remember a Republican president quite like him. I mean, a <laughs> lot true. of Republican dogma has been tossed aside on trade, right. on deficits and spending. Right. Trump has his own unique brand of, he has his own unique philosophy, such as it is. I think a lot of it is intuitive and market-driven. And what the market tells him is to be a cultural warrior and to be liberal on economics in some ways. I mean, his tax cut was very much, a, in, in my view, a, a Republican that tax was. cut. Yes, I agree. Uh, you know, it's very heavy on side. corporate tax yeah. cuts. But on the spending side, you know, his view is give people, you know, try and throw things at people that they want. And, um, you know, as he said to someone quoted in, the, in a report when deficits were raised with him, he said, well, that's going to be someone else's problem. We'll be gone by then. Right. But, you but know, that, it is a, a remarkable to me how how compliant the Republican Party has exactly, become. Exactly. Because I remember getting lectured quite a bit when I worked for President Obama, sure. and he actually reduced the deficits by right. two-thirds, but they were still, every, every single debate was dominated by Republicans lecturing the right. president on spending. Right. And Republicans during the Obama period were also 
just they kept hammering away at, at something that's been very important, and that is when a country's national debt gets very high as a percentage of the GDP of that country, uh, you you do run the you run several risks of a major major recession, and that I think is a serious issue here because uh, for historically. Uh, we had this was a country that about we had a, our national debt after the Second World War was about 38 percent, 39 percent each year of our economy, and now it's well over 100 um, percent, and that is very dangerous territory in the minds of, of economists. So you, you coming from the University of Chicago, knowing that Chicago school, that was tossed on his head. It's head spinning, really. Right. It does leave a lane for a. Democratic candidate to come along and saying we need more discipline. It it does it does. Although I think that is a concern of economists. I don't know if it's a motivational agree. issue for voters. But you mentioned Iowa. Leaving aside the disaster of how you know the fact that yeah. we're sitting here in the middle of the week and they're still counting in Iowa. Pete Buttigieg, who's someone you probably were exposed to yes. at Harvard. Yes, Institute of Politics at Harvard. Just, yes. I'm sure you've had him at, at yes, your yes, Institute yes. of Politics Chicago. Yeah. Give me your top line on, on the results there and how it has impacted <laughs> on this Democratic race, which seems more uncertain today than ever. I, I agree with that, absolutely. Look, I, I thought the biggest surprise last night was that Buttigieg was running neck and neck. We don't know the final numbers, but they're, they're definitely clumped together with Sanders. Uh, and I didn't see that coming. I thought, you know, I, I knew that Sa- Sanders, all the reporting was that Sanders was rising, but it was never done in the context that he's done a head-on-head with, with Buttigieg. So you, you have to give credit to Buttigieg. He ran, a good, uh, he ran a good campaign. He was extremely well-organized for someone coming out of, as being a rookie, now, you saw this with Obama. You're a rookie on first time out. It's hard. It's really hard to, to, to know how to run uh, in the primaries. Uh, usually, uh, people run once, and they, they, they lose, and then they know how to do but, better. Well, it, not just in the primaries, but presidential races are such a maelstrom. Yes, I agree. I mean, everything you say can get blown up sure. uh, instantaneously in this modern media environment, and you're uh, under constant pressure. It is a uh, it is a pressure cooker. It is a pressure cooker, and he, but for a, a young man this age, he's half the age of some of the people he's competing against, um, to do as well as he did. Uh, I, th- I think it's not only striking, but it raises the question, could he be another one of these unknown figures who, who sort of bursts into our politics and there's a lot of excitement that j- he generates and he suddenly becomes a nominee or has a real shot at the nomination. You know, we saw this way back with Jimmy Carter when in 1976 when he was— You were on the other side of that. I was on the other side. Who was this guy, you know? who was a peanut farmer coming out of Georgia. And had, with only one term as, as governor, uh, and yet he ran a remarkably good race. He got off this great start right at the opening, and and the press fell in love with the press loves underdogs, and especially ones with f- fresh faces. And he took off. And similarly with Barack Obama, nobody expected him to do what he did. But in both the Carter case and the Obama case, and now in the Buttigieg case, they're making their mark by appealing to the idealism of the country uh, at a time when. There's an awful lot of anguish about what's going on in Washington, and they're sort of saying we can be better, we can do better than this, and that. And we gave Carter the benefit of the doubt. He didn't turn out to be a great president, but he was was a saint, but he wasn't a great president. But Obama, he's a very strong president, and Buttigieg, 
that suddenly now we'll see he could flame out very quickly. I mean that's a quest. That's the question. What what now? Yeah. You, we've got a primary on right. Tuesday in New Hampshire. Right. But uh, I would I would say David that the other the the big story out of last night was not necessarily Buttigieg. The big story to me was Biden and finishing as as weakly as he did. Yeah. Uh, coming in fourth and we'll have to see whether he improves. It looks like he's pretty well. You know, whatever the numbers are in the remaining 29% of the votes that are still coming He's in. mired in fourth place yeah. and, 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 and not that high, not that far ahead of Amy yeah. Klobuchar. Don't, don't you think he needs to come in number one or number two next in, in I do. New Hampshire? Yeah, I and, do. And otherwise it's problematic. Yeah, I you know well he's got money problems. Right, he's he's not he's he's deeply deeply in need of money, right. and you don't make more by losing. <laughs> uh, it's hard to be the front runner when you keep finishing third and fourth. And their theory is that he can survive that and get to South Carolina and be revived. But I think losing begets losing in this business. I, I and, agree. Uh, and, his, and his main message has been so limited to I'm the guy who can beat Trump. Yeah, and if you keep it, losing, you don't look like the guy who can beat exactly, Trump. Exactly, exactly. And his number, you know, Trump's going to move ahead of him in the polls here if, if, if Biden loses another one. Yeah. So I think I think the pressure is on. That's not to say he, can, he can't do it. I think he still got, he still has plenty of life. But if he were to come in third or fourth in New Hampshire, I I don't think that South Carolina necessarily solves his problem to come back and win in South Carolina. I don't think that's enough. I think he's still a weakened candidate, a wounded candidate. So let's just play this out. Uh, Let's say uh, Bernie Sanders wins in New Hampshire as expected, perhaps in Nevada, and Biden wins in South Carolina. So now you have three different winners and a muddle going into – into Super Tuesday, and you've got Mike, Michael Bloomberg waiting right. on the other side, willing to and already deploying his billions. We've never seen anything like that, that before. That's right. But me, there's one little piece of it that, that I think needs to be put into the puzzle, too, and that is in New Hampshire. Before Iowa, Buttigieg was running third, and Biden was running second. The Boston Globe has been reporting now uh, that... Buttigieg, their early numbers are that Buttigieg got, got, has gotten a boost in, in New Hampshire. If he passes Biden and comes out second in New Hampshire, I think that is a real difference between if Buttigieg beats Biden in New Hampshire, that's one story. But if he loses to I Biden, it's another story. And I that's agree. that rate, that, that competition is worth watching. Can Bloomberg, uh, you know, he, he's hired. He has a full employment program <laughs> over there for political yes. operatives, and yeah. uh, and he's put more. He'll have put more advertising on television in the first few months of 2020 right. before Super Tuesday than Barack Obama spent in all of 2012 as a sitting president. Wow. Can all that spending yield the nomination for him? I no, but I think it can. It can thrust you into the limelight in a way that people can't. You. People will have to make decisions about whether you, you. People have to take you into account. Well, he'll be part of the mix. That doesn't necessarily bring him the nomination at some point, or whether debates or his public experiences and that sort of thing. He he has to prove himself to voters, and that's I, that's I, a I challenge. Do, it is a challenge. He's not. I think you remarked before. He's not a particularly warm individual. Right. I have. Listen, I'm also biased. I have a. I'm a Bloomberg fan. Oh, yeah. I, I wrote in his name, you know, a couple of elections ago because it was. Um, I thought he was a very good mayor of New York, and I think he would make a. Very yeah, you good can be a fan. Again. You can be a fan. I mean, he is a formidable, formidable yes. person, and 
a world-class philanthropist. Right. He's made a real difference on a bunch of issues like climate change and guns. Right. All of that is true. I'm asking you because you are someone who was very much a student of and a participant in the performance elements of politics. Right. And the question is whether he has that, whether he, when he steps out from behind the curtain, is it going to be a Wizard of Oz sort of syndrome where he is less than people I, hoped? I, it could be. It could be. I, I read some things the last couple of days, what he's been saying on the stump, and it was not as impressive as I thought he is. Um, and I, I do think uh, we'll see. Will there be town halls with Bloomberg? Is CNN going to give him a town hall as the way they gave other candidates? I don't know. Um, but he will be on the debate stage, apparently, not this, not this week, but in the few weeks he'll be on the debate stage how he handles himself there is going to be very important. yeah i'm not sure that he was he may be the dog that caught the car yeah. getting on that debate stage i'm sure he was pretty happy to sort of hang back here run his ads and wait right. for super tuesday and now he's going to have to perform and he's going to be the story because it'll be his debut performance and that's going to be hard sometimes i think the best thing is to stipulate your limitations and yeah. make them an advantage right. if i were bloomberg i'd I'd acknowledge I'm not hey I'm not a stemwinder I'm not a performer sure. I'm not a reality show host I'm not an entertainer right. I'm just a guy who gets things done Right and, and that's uh, it, that's his ad tagline Yeah he might get No no done. but I, I think he needs to sort of sur- stipulate for people hey if you're expecting me to light up the screen Yes that's not what I do you got a guy who's doing that <laughs> if you want that uh, that's a you good know, and I think I, I probably would do that We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You've got one of the most interesting stories in, in American politics. I didn't realize that you now, now you a lot of people I talk to have these sort of came from the wrong side of the tracks, worked them their way up. You're not one of those stories, right? You came from the right side of the, stra- the tracks. I grew up on dirt road, but it was the right dirt road we grew up on. <laughs> <laughs> you, your father was an eminent mathematician. When did the Gergens get here? Ah, uh, well. <laughs> My family, my parents moved to North Carolina in the 1930s. But where did their family come from? Well, I mean, I'm saying, what is the uh, yeah, origins sure, of, sure. of the Gurgans okay. in America? My, my, my mom was, was was British, came out and and had relatives on the Mayflower. But how many, lots and lots of people had relatives. I don't, that damn boat, boat must have sunk sometime. <laughs> the, um, uh, and my and my dad came from Alsace-Lorraine, which has sort of been claimed at times by the Germans and at times by the French. Um, but it was, you know, some generations ago when they came through Canada. Uh, so it took a while to get here. But but my dad, so my dad grew up in, uh, in St. Paul, uh, Minneapolis, and my mom grew up in Boston, actually. And uh, they met when my dad was a... Um, uh, on the faculty at Harvard in the mathematics department. That's where they met, and he, he courted her and married her. 
that's where I met my wife and courted her and married her, and that's where my son actually had his first conversations with um, his eventual wife. So we have a lot of Harvard-related. Harvard well, uh, sort of Massachusetts, Cambridge-related. Um, just uh, like a Gurgen thing, you go up there to, to court and yeah, mate. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. But, I, but my dad would say uh, was um, had it's a long story, but he was a mathematician who was chairman of the, of the Duke math department. So I grew up with this somewhat austere uh, and also very uh, you know, school-oriented uh, father. But when I first went off to college, I took calculus. And um, when I got home at Christmas, he quizzed me a little bit. And he took me over to a blackboard in, at, at Duke. And we, we worked afternoon after afternoon so he could get me over the bar. And he made it very clear when it was over. And my dad said, "You should, son, you should look for another line of work. <laughs> <laughs> but you actually had found a line of work. You were a student journalist from I an will. early age. Why? Well, uh, the, the, I loved athletics and played a lot. You, you were a pitcher for a while until yeah. you uh, <laughs> and lost I, your ability to locate your pitch, I heard. <laughs> So I, I was I was tall, but there was a period of time when I was around fourteen when I sprouted up. I gained about six inches over eight months or so. In any event, I lost my control. I w- I had been a pretty good pitcher before that. We gone to state championships with pony league that kind of stuff. Um, but I completely lost my control, and I I tried out for the high school baseball team, and uh, we we had our first practices in, inside a gym, and I threw a pitch to the catcher, and it did go through a window. David, the window was on the second floor of the gym. <laughs> Did the coach call you up and say, maybe you should try calculus? Yeah, so, I, <laughs> so at that point, I became a, I became a sports writer for the local newspaper, um, the Durham Morning Herald and the Durham Sun. And I, and I, and I eventually turned to hard news. I, I did obituaries for a while. Uh, but, you know, you had your journalistic I uh, am, uh, yeah. background. And, and mine was uh, – I, I had sort of a full-time job in uh, working for local newspapers when I was around 15. And uh, I've been sort of yeah, dabbling in it since. You uh, were the ed- <laughs> managing editor of the Yale Daily News. I was. I was uh, that was a competition of the, the – pr- the Private school boys versus the public high school guys. I was I was the candidate for the public high school guys, and we lost because the guys who came from prep schools they 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 knew how to win the system in those days. <laughs> Ultimately, you you came out of college, and did, was it then that you worked for Terry Sanford? Yeah, in the summers, I yeah, he was a Democrat. He was our Jack Kennedy. Uh, he was the he was the individual who was. Uh, a major force in persuading a lot of us who grew up in North Carolina to get into public life. He had a terrific following, uh, and I, I he was friend through life. Um, but in any event, I went to work for him, and I've, I as an intern. And at that time, this 1963, um, as you remember, the civil rights uh, movement was uh, full bloom. Full, yeah. full bloom, but yeah. we also had the, the murders of those three kids in in Mississippi. And so tensions were high, and Terry Sanford was very worried about t- violence breaking out in North Carolina, and he formed something called the Nor- started something called the North Carolina Good Neighbor Councils, and they were biracial c- uh, councils in each city uh, of, of leading African Americans and leading whites to try to work on education and jobs, but also keep the peace in their communities. And I worked. Uh, I had three summers 
working on that, on that for a man named David Coltrane, who was a big segregationist for much of his life, grew up on a, a hard scrabble farm, but he had become an integrationist, and and I was his sidekick, his aide de camp. It was, and I have to tell you, David, I had uh, many fine experiences on the national scene in the White House, but the days working for Terry Sanford in North Carolina were the most satisfying of all my public life. Uh, well, that was activities. such a vital period, particularly yeah. in the South. Um, well, it was, it was one of those days. It was one of those things when you stood up. You either stood up or you didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, you had to know which side of the line you were on. And um, I, one of my greatest disappointments is I thought by the time we left this good earth, we would have solved this racial problem, and we haven't. We haven't yeah. really confronted it yeah. in its totality. Yeah. I, you know, the horror yeah. of it. We we haven't confronted it, and right. it's a difficult discussion. It's going to take wisdom to lead that a discussion, lot. not not exploit it I, I i worry we're moving in the wrong south. we're going in the wrong direction i'm not going to talk about your years at harvard law school right. because Please uh, don't. you because you uh never did anything with your gold-plated harvard <laughs> law degree yeah. uh you well, en- you you did enter the navy i did like i well the war was on yeah the vietnam, vietnam war was on and um, i'm from the south and there's a long tradition in the south that if there's a war uh, you you go uh, and so I, I, I faced the, the draft was coming. I knew the draft was likely, likely to be there, and I, I didn't want to go and be in the upriver jungles of Vietnam and just be sort of um, cannon fodder, in effect. So I applied for the Navy and got into the Navy and, as a, and went to officer candidate school, and I wound up going to – I asked for service in Asia – uh, and and said the one thing I didn't want to do was be an engineer. And of course, they gave me an engineering billet <laughs> in Asia. <laughs> so I was on a ship home ported in Japan, but we went to other places, including Vietnam. Uh, but I, I applied. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I was drawn to how can I be engaged with the big issues of my generation, whatever they may be. I'd like to be part of that because that's where progress and excitement and you know you can see things possibly happen. Um, and so I applied for to, to get off the ship to go to Vietnam to be right, right for the Stars and Stripes, building on mm-hmm. journalistic background. So my captain vetoed it. You know, wouldn't let me off the ship. But eventually, I came, I came back to serve a year um, in uniform to reform the draft. Another long story, but um, the draft at that point was a uh, hugely controversial about whether it was being conducted fairly. You had some experiences at sea, some emergency on board that were chaos yeah. reigned and, and so on. And you and you serve with people from all over the country. Yeah, I mean, and that's I, one of the. Tell me how that experience, because you, like I said, you you had a pretty rarefied upbringing. Yeah, I I thought I, it was very. The, the, serving in the navy was a much more satisfying uh, experience than I expected. Um, and in particular, I, I felt like I'd gone to Eastern elite schools. I went to Yale as an undergraduate, and then I went on to the Harvard Law School. So you come out of sort of the ivory tower, and you you have a lot of privilege. You don't know a lot. You don't know a lot, and you're also you don't realize how much of a life of privilege you've gotten into. I didn't start with privilege, but by the time I finished law school, I, I was certainly privileged. And what what the Navy did was it they gave me responsibility for 50 enlisted guys, and all guys at that point. And they were all young men who, you know, some some of them had graduated from high school. A lot hadn't, but suddenly I had to deal with their issues of 
you know, they're drinking and, and the, the women who came through the, the process and whenever you hit, hit a beach um, and whether they were paying their taxes or not, it was an eye-opening experience to spend time being a mentor, worrying about being a protector, but also being a leader of these 50 guys and and who really brought me back down to earth about the way the world really works mm-hmm. and and to get out of get beyond the, that that elite the elitism so that was really really helpful healthy for me you ultimately when you got out your first job was in government was right. working for Richard Nixon yes and you arrived there at a time when the thing began to unravel, and you were there through that. But you've spoken about sort of the crafting of the president and that you learned a lot of that in that period of time. You were involved in the speechwriting communications operation. And, you know, there was a very deliberate sort of selling of the president. In fact, there was a book called The Selling of the President right. about Joe the McGinnis. 68 campaign of Nixon's. Right. What did you learn from that experience? And then let's talk about Richard Nixon, who's a complex figure in American history. When Nixon came in, there are the early divisions between the Republican Party and the press. You could see those divisions starting with in 1964 when Goldwater was mm-hmm. was the nominee, and and the delegates were shouting at the press. And in '68 in Chicago, you know, with the mayors there, there was a lot of you know anger at the press, as you may remember. Um, so when when Nixon came in, there was a belief that control of national conversation was coming out of the networks in New York, with the producers there being the gatekeepers on what was said to the American people and what was not said. And it was and people on the Republican Party thought that the whole coverage was skewed against them. And so they were trying to fight back, and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to invent ways to get the message out. And Nixon was one of the and ones. And navigate around them. Navigate around it, under them, over them, however you wanted to do it. And Nixon was the one who sort of brought Wall Street, I mean, uh, Madison Avenue, about the advertising mm-hmm. community and, and Madison Avenue to bear, and, and got some pretty, you know, feisty writers like Pat Buchanan. Uh, was one of the speechwriters then, and uh, you were and in that speechwriting group. I, I was hired by the chief of the speechwriters, who was uh, who was looking for an assistant, and he did. He had no idea, idea how disorganized I was, um, but anyway, he hired me. He, he offered me a job. Uh, I told him I had voted for Hubert Humphrey in '68, not for Nixon, and I wasn't at all sure that he would want to hire anybody. Uh, but he had gone to Yale, and I'd gone to Yale, and we struck up a relationship. And he said, "Why don't you come in for a year and work on, for Nixon?" Which I did, and then, and I, one year turned into three and a half years because my boss, who was head of the speechwriting, sort of became an independent counselor to the president, and I moved up to run the speechwriting shop. Um, and uh, and we had about, it was about fifty people actually between speechwriting yeah, people and like research Buchanan, Bill Sapphire, yeah. some really yeah, and Ben, ben Stein. Ben, the, ben Stein. I, I hired Ben Stein. Ben Stein. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was. Um, I, I. There were two two conditions Ben had. One was that he could have an office with a couch, and the second was that during lunchtime breaks he could be uh, uh, essentially 
lying on the couch watching the soap operas. <laughs> and then nobody would bother him about that. And I said, Ben, why the hell do you want to watch the soap operas? He said, because that's where true Americans are. Uh-huh. And if we want to communicate with Americans, we got to know what's on the soaps. And he eventually uh, um, went out to Hollywood to uh, to represent the conservative view to uh, to um, the So how did Hollywood you navigate writers. around the media? So it, at that time, it was mostly about speech writing, and, and I wasn't sort of in the strategic com- communications mm-hmm. planning side of it. I was just a young kid still. Um, uh, but, you know, I, you, you, you learned, you sort of began to, began to understand what the Nixon message was, and then it, it, the speech writing team was sort of like a, an orchestra. At one point, you'd want to play some Pat Buchanan because he was so pungently, you know, mm-hmm. uh, conservative and combative. At other times, you know, Bill Sapphire was sort of very sophisticated, or Ray Price had a lot of grace notes. You'd know which, you know, you'd ask him, "Will you write this speech or write that part of it?" Um, and uh, you know, at that by the time I became I became head of the speechwriting team after just after the election of seventy two as my first election. I had never been to a political convention before, and um, we were in Miami for for that convention mm-hmm. of, of seventy two. And I was asked to be the uh, in charge of the script. I was supposed to be the choreographer with all the speeches and everything like that. And I'll tell you a little story about that. So I was trying to figure out it was a everybody knew what the outcome was going to be. So it was a pretty boring story in some way. And we were looking for ways to put some pep into it and make it more interesting and more fun. So I called Bob Hope's team and, and said, can we hire a couple of comedy writers? to come to the Republican convention, which they allowed us to do. I brought them to Miami. We put them in a hotel room uh, watching the convention, and they had an open line to our trailer. And they would be watching, and they would come up with funny lines, and they would call the trailer. And then I would go run and take the, these funny lines to the next speaker. <laughs> it was, How did they handle the material? They, well, I, I, I remember the first time I ever met Ronald Reagan was he was just about to give uh, a big he speech. He could handle the material. Yeah, and I said, you know, and he, I said, I'm from the White House. He said, yeah, you work for the damn White House. Get, get away from me. Don't, don't talk to me. <laughs> but I gave him a couple of joke lines, and he took one of them. Yeah. yeah. You ended <laughs> up, well, we'll gracious. talk about Reagan in a second. Yeah, sure. You work for four presidents, and i got to get to all of them. Yeah, yeah, so okay. um, you were there through the Watergate period. I was. I, I wrote. I, I was uh, head of his d- the defense groups that wrote white papers around how money had been spent at, at San Clemente and his house for, for the Secret Service, but Nixon was accused of you know, embellishing his own mm-hmm, house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote one about his taxations and so forth. So you were, perif- you were deeply in the defense yes, of right. the, the and president. On, and on the peripheral issues, he, he was actually not so guilty. It was just the central issue. He was guilty as hell. And when did you discover that? Late in the game. Uh, the the cover up, which was elaborate, worked better inside the White House with the staff than it worked almost anywhere else, because we came to work every day. I'd never known anybody went to jail, uh, and I came to work every day. And you know, Haldeman or Ehrlichman would be saying, you know, it's just the liberal press are trying to K Graham, Katie Graham, they call her, trying to take us down. This is all bullshit. And um, and it turned. And I had a, I'd gone to school with Bob Woodward. We were two or three classes apart. Um, but we had a back channel that was sort of a recognized back channel. And it turned out that Woodward was telling me the truth, and my bosses were lying. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that until pretty late in the game. How much of a source were you for, for Woodward? Um, that's a good question. 
The deal was he he called me because he was when they had a big story about to pop. They wanted to get a White House reaction, and he nobody would answer the phone when he called. And he called me as a, as a friend and said, "Can you help me get access?" And I went to Ron Ziegler, who was press secretary, and Len Garman, who was a, a major advisor, and said, "This is Woodward's calling me. Here's what he wants. What should we do? What should I do?" And they said, "Bring him in a back door," uh, which I did. And that began a relationship in which the president was told Gergen is going to be a, a, a line to Woodward from time to time. I just want you to know about it. And he was—he actually signed off on it. So in that sense, I was – but I was a – I wasn't a turncoat source. I wasn't somebody trying to bring him down. I was trying to really bring perspective. I didn't know how deep the corruption was at that point. Well, you did at the end. Tell me about the end of yeah. the Nixon years, and what was it like to be in the White House at that time? Going through the White House was like being in the Marine Corps. You, 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 a lot of incoming, and you formed very close relationships with people who were by your side. You didn't know quite who was honest and who wasn't. Um, John Dean worked two doors down the hall from me, and I had no idea until I read his book that it was like a mafia operation in there. And uh, uh, so there were there were a lot of shocks. I, I what about it, the president was, himself? The president himself was erratic. Um, I, I spent more time with him those in those last months, and uh, he was drinking a lot. Um, I didn't think the country was in danger from that, but I what did become aware that the Secretary of Defense went and told the military, if you get an order from the White House to fire a missile or to, or to unload a bomb, don't do anything until you personally clear it with me because we don't know what kind of orders are going to come out of the White House. We, who knew it? What, and is, you know, whether the president might go a little crazy. So in that sense, it was like a, mm-hmm. a tense time. And you were aware of that then? I was aware we were going through a very tense time. And Woodward and I used to talk about, we were really worried, David, about the pillars of the, the Republic crumbling. Mm-hmm. You know, was, we weren't sure whether we are going to get through this and whether, you know, how much, how much of a national security problem we had on our hands. So it was, you, we wanted to think the best, but there were increasing signs of the worst. Uh, we didn't know for sure until the tapes came out. Then at that point, it was you. You couldn't leave at that point. It was like rats leaving a, sh- a sinking ship. President Ford took over. He was the vice president, yes. appointed vice president. Yes, th- uh, thoroughgoingly decent. Uh, right. He brought, brought a, 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 he. It, it was the end of the long national nightmare, as, as Ford said in the speech. Um, Ford was one of the honest men I've met, and I think we were really fortunate to have him step in. Sacrificed his 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 ability to he, continue he by pardoning Nixon. He did. He? It was it was a it was it turned out it was a gutsy call. And a few years ago, the John F. Kennedy Library gave him gave Jerry Ford posthumously its medal for profiling courage for pardoning Ford, and he yeah. cost him. A, cost him the White House. Yeah. Ronald Reagan, you worked for Reagan for the first couple of years of his presidency. Tell me about him as a political figure and a performer. Uh, yeah, I, he was the most natural performer that uh, that we've had uh, in the White House, and I, I, at least in my experience. And um, I, he, he, was, he was not the brightest uh, of, of our presence, uh, you know, he really liked things reduced to one page and that sort of thing. I mean, a huge difference between, say, a Reagan versus an Obama in terms of temperament and personality and who they are. But I did think he captured Americana. He understood the he he was 
you know, when when uh, De Gaulle, Charles De Gaulle, died in France, it was said it was said of him, he was not great <clears throat> because he was in France. He was great because France was in him. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a characterized Nixon as well. He, he sort of America was in him. He understood and he could speak too. I I was not as conservative as he was, and we came to differences on uh, issues like abortion, uh, but also some some other civil rights issues and things like that. Um, But um, I I thought he was a very effective leader, and and in contrast to what we're doing now, here was a conservative president who believed that the press ought to be treated as and respected. Uh, and we ought to respect their First Amendment rights and take a more professional attitude toward them. And I think that Reagan got better press because he was more professional and he sort of, you know, he, you know Jim Baker was our chief of staff. He met every week with the magazines, the three news magazines. Mm-hmm. He, he met regularly with the New York Times. He wanted me to meet with people. You know, we were more open. Although today, I guess the attitude of this White House is they can do a workaround as you yes. I mean, through social media, through right. Fox News. But that's right. I think that's right. And it's very different uh, terrain. But hey, could I, Nixon have survived, by the way, if Fox News were around, if he had this yeah. media environment? Would he have— That's a really good question. I, I, uh, I, I, I think he would have used the hell out of Fox News. I mean, Roger Ailes worked for him way back yes. when. He was one of his top people. Right. Um, and in that 68 campaign you were talking about, Roger Ailes was at the center right. of that and sort of the merchandising of, of, of Nixon. Richard Nixon. So I yeah I do think he would have uh, taken every opportunity to go around. Nixon, you know, didn't know the boundaries. I mean, he he didn't obey the boundaries. Um, well, in that and, sense, he's a little like the president we have now. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And I th- and it's not an accident that a Roy Cohn has had much as much influence on uh, on our current incumbent uh-huh. as he has. And I think it's been a malignant influence. Yeah, because he trafficked with Nixon and it, uh, Yeah, McCarthy. but he was in, and also just the whole McCarthy period. And Yeah, you know, uh, it does give a politician an advantage, doesn't it? When yeah. they have no boundaries, it creates a kind yeah. of asymmetric warfare if he's Competing with a party or a candidate yeah. that does have boundaries. Yeah, no, I, absolutely, and I I think that's one of the things that the Democrats have to figure out in this campaign. Are they going to are they going to return fire for fire, or are they going to you know try to be gentlemen as they go through the campaign and then get you know there's that old saying you can't bring a chocolate declare to a knife fight. Yes, uh, and they they it's going to be a hard question for Democrats I think in terms of how they run this campaign. I think it's one of the attractions of Bloomberg. I think he'll be very very hard hitting, but it, but he'll do it in a clever way. You worked for three Republican presidents. Right. You worked for Bill Clinton. I did. Tell me about him as a president. <clears throat> I'd gotten to know Bill Clinton uh, because he was from the South, from Arkansas. We went to something called a Renaissance Group early yes. on. And got to be, and, and he, he also came to our magazine periodically. So I, we, we became friends. And um, You were I, critical you know, of his first year. You were writing editorials. I, first, well, I thought he was off to a, a bad start. He was floundering in, that, in his early months. It's hard to come to the White House from a background as limited, from a small state. With you know, the press press corps is not very challenging. the flip side to the fresh face. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. But you take Carter and 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 Clinton both got off to, to tough starts. You know, and so they and called you in. They and called said, me okay, I smart knew. guy. Yeah. If, you, if you're so smart, why don't you come in here and help us fix it? Well, <laughs> they were a little kinder than that, but but that was the general. That was message. the essence. Of it. <laughs> that was the essence. Yeah, of it. yeah, that was the essence. Of it. And, and, and tell I, me about Clinton as a president. 
Uh, I thought Bill Clinton was the smartest guy we've had in the presidency, with the possible exception of Barack, uh, in, term, in terms of the con- contemporary presidency. Uh, I first met him when he was reading a book on, on Japanese work circles and things of that sort, way back in the <laughs> 80s. And he was, uh, uh, he was just a very, very curious man. Um, he, he was one of these people, um, I mean, this literally <clears throat> could be true. He, he, he could be engaged in two separate conversations in parallel at the same time. I, I was frequently in the Oval Office in a conversation with four or five people with him, very small, and we'd be talking about some issue. And then, uh, and he would say he'd be very engaged in a conversation. And then while we were talking, he got out of his New York Times crossword puzzle and continued to fill it in. And, you know, you get about three minutes into the conversation about some storm in Florida, and he'd say, who is that character in the second act of Aida? <laughs> And, uh, and it, 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 at first, I, you know, I, I was, um, uh, I, I wasn't just surprised. I was a little insulted yeah. <laughs> that I was saying something so golden that he was very figuring figuring out the crossword puzzle at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Now, did um, but, you, but he was. Were um, you able to come up with the Aida character? No, I never did. Yeah. The, um, but I, uh, uh, Bill Clinton. You know, it goes back to this character question that's so central, I think, to the presidency. You know, David McCullough, in, in his biography of Truman, wrote that character is the single most important quality needed in a president. Um, and I, I th- Bill Clinton was, you know, he, he had a marriage that hadn't settled down. He had a private life that hadn't settled down. And Manifestly. Um, yeah, and he, you know, in some ways he would have been better off waiting four more years. Uh, to run, but he he didn't he didn't expect to be president when he ran in in ninety two. It was thought, a long shot. It was a long shot. He thought Cuomo was going to be the nominee, yeah. and that the Democrats would have nominated three liberals in a row, gone down three times in a row, and that would open the door to a southerner, you know, in a in a middle of the road or moderate mm-hmm. kind of guy to to, to win the presidency. Um, and um, at any event, <clears throat> he was. Um, he 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 had cracks in his character that he hadn't really resolved. I think he's in a much better place today as even as a human being, but at that, that time it was just a little bit rambunctious. And he was uh, he was very very bright, but it it, it was one house that didn't quite work. Didn't, you yourself it, probably <laughs> had, I mean, reportedly had some difficult relationships. I did. You weren't entirely trusted by. <laughs> well, you <clears throat> listen. I, I was actually uh, sympathetic with people who were had worked really hard in the Clinton campaign. You know, Carville and Stephanopoulos and other people like that. They'd worked really, really hard, and they had followings in the White House. Uh, and they'd worked hard as hell to get the Republicans out of the White House. And six months into a Clinton presidency here, the president is calling on somebody who worked for those Republicans to come in and help fix things. That's and they probably viewed you as a bit of an opportunist. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you know, if I'd been in their shoes, I would have been angry about my coming in. And I, so I understood that. I thought I would get more protection, frankly, from the, the Oval Office than I did. When I first came in, he, he was—he was, lost his self-confidence. He was uh, he was stumbling a lot. I knew he was a much better political figure than he was. Lost the battle yeah. over healthcare. <laughs> yes, and I and I was there for some of that. And I um, and so the question was how to get him back on his feet. And what you know better than I do is, as, as an advisor, a political advisor especially, you can't change people. 
what you can do is maybe bring out the best of them. That's what any kind of coach, strategist yeah. tries to do is maximize the strengths right. of, of their principal right, and right. minimize the the weaknesses. Right. So when I first got there and, and people realized he was in trouble, they lay off. They didn't like me being there, but they didn't say very much about it. And 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 then gradually, gradually his self confidence returned, and he got he got out of the ditch. And once he was upright and moving, then the attacks came. You know, the sharks came after me, and there were new stories in the newspaper not to be trusted. You know, he's a leaker. He's this. He's that. And it made their. It that made is it, a persistent uh, criticism of you, and yeah. I wanted to ask you: you you sort of have one foot in journalism, one foot right. in politics, and you did have a lot of relationships with journalists. I and did. You probably were talking with journalists, and it's always a thin line between using the, these relationships for right. the benefit of the organization right. and using them for your own benefit. And right. how do you find that line? Uh, I think a lot depends on what your understandings are within the organization and especially your relationship to the president and the relationship with the chief of staff. Uh, you've got to have some sort of uh, transparency. I got the reputation for being a leaker in the Reagan years. Um, Apparently Nancy uh, Reagan thought you were. Yeah, well, that's, you know, I worked for Baker, and Baker was a master at, uh, at running things. I thought he was the best chief of staff yeah. ever. No, he's a um, and Hall of he, Famer. He, he asked me to look, look, you've had experience in the press. I want you to be able to, I want you to talk to people privately. We've got our press office, but I want you to be the person, who, you and I work it out. And he would periodically meet with members of the press. And I would periodically meet with members of the press but there are others around who are the more conservative folks around Reagan who thought we were being disloyal because Baker himself came out of the Ford yes uh, and yeah uh, we and were Bush the operation we were seen as part of the pragmatic moderate wing right. uh, of things and uh, you know I thought I, I thought the the secret success of Reagan at the staff level was that he did have a chief of staff who was who was moderate very pragmatic and very hard-headed about how to get things done but he also had people from California he just didn't bring in his California mafia he brought them in but he brought in also mm-hmm. Baker and Baker recruited me and others who knew their way around Washington yeah. knew how to get things done uh, you work for these four presidents yep. Since then, you, you, you've taught leadership at Harvard. You created an institute around mm-hmm. leadership at Harvard. Based on your vast experience, mm-hmm. what are Just the common experience. qualities that are of leadership that make a president successful or the lack of which cause a president to fail? A very good question. Look, I, I think it's really important that you have a toolbox of skills, you know, that you're able to persuade people, that you uh, know how to run a good team, that, you, uh, uh, that you've got some strategy or vision of what you're, where you're trying to go and you've got a strategy to get there. Um, I think there's just a variety of things we look to that are sort of fairly standard in any organization. Uh, but the single most important over time is the quality and character of the of the of the leader. Uh, you, you set the standards. You set the tone uh, for the organization. And if and if people are working for you see you shut uh, cut corners and you know essentially line your way through it, they'll start doing the same thing. Uh, whereas, if, say in the case of a Jerry Ford, we knew he was honest, and people. F- were very honest around him. Yeah, um, I had the same experience. Yeah, with with Obama. Yes. Yeah, I mean there was no question. There were no, there were no. Nobody got a pass. Yeah, and everybody understood what the rules were. Yeah, and everybody happily abided by them. I yeah. sold my. I had two 
modest businesses, and I sold them in a week before mm-hmm. I got to the White House because I, I didn't want any conflicts of right. interest. Right. That seems yeah. like a quaint thing yeah. now. Sure. Talk about uh, Donald Trump and uh, well, what are his strengths as, as a politician, and talk about him as a president. His strength, uh, it, it's sort of the elephant in the conversation, isn't it? The, uh, he, I, I think he's remarkably uh, strong at marketing, uh, and he's much better than I would have expected at reading the national mood and understanding, uh, you know, if, if you, as you know, in journalism, one of the things you try to do is sort of figure out, okay, here's what is being said publicly. What's the real conversation? What's mm-hmm. going on around dinner tables? So what are people talking about? How, what are their concerns? And he could pick up on that. He understood the anxiety. He's been selling all his life. He's been selling all his life, but he understands. Somehow he gets it, the anxieties in places like Wisconsin or Michigan and these yeah. Midwestern states. Who would have thought he would have done that? So he, he's very strong. One of the things Democrats have to do is somebody come, come up with somebody as tough as he is. Because he'll just wipe you out. I mean, it's one of the questions that Buttigieg. I mean, on, on the surface, it, you know, people are going to say, you know, Trump could eat him for breakfast. Whoever emerges, this process toughens you, and you yeah. certify your toughness by winning. Right. Nobody hands it to you. Exactly, and so. he's he's tough. But so uh, those qualities in and of themselves are again you know, can be quite positive in in the, in the in the service of the presidency. But he has no moral core. I I think it's really important that you. Uh, that you have a moral compass in, in the Oval Office and in most other leadership positions because uh, that, that is what gives direction and helps people to figure out what's to put a preference on the right versus wrong and do the hard right versus the easy wrong. Um, and I, I think, uh, uh, you know, a man without a compass is a man who's sort of lost in, in terms of what – and is dangerous. Um, yeah, so you 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 know you don't know where he's going to go. We don't know. There are all these books that are coming out that, that make the place sound like a, a mafia operation inside, and I knew what that was like from the Nixon days, and it's it's extremely unhealthy and very unhelpful for the country. I think that I, I think our democracy is under great pressure right now. Democracies around the world are under pressure, and we need to be very very aware that unless we pull ourselves together. We could go the way of a lot of other republics in the past, and that most republics in history have not survived. Sobering note to end on. It is. I'm hopeful. I'm still. I'm. I'm very hopeful. I'm most hopeful. You and I have something very, very much in common. We're now both working with the younger generation. Yes. And I find a lot of hope in the quality of the young people we're working around. Yeah, yeah, but you're quite right about the strains on democracy, yeah. and uh, uh, I think that we've grown up sort of taking things for granted I agree. that no longer can be taken for granted. Yep. And Democracy is a self. It requires something of us. You have to continue cultivating the garden. Yeah, otherwise, as the saying goes, the jungle comes back. Well, with that admonition, okay. David Gergen, always great David, that's right. Good to be with Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.